And I always remember saying to people that I genuinely believe that social chain, if we were responsible for selling beds or for selling bathrooms, we'd be the best asset because we approach things with a different mindset. And that's what we kind of ingrained into people from the starting ages, from when they were starting social chain. It's like, the world is going to change. Our number one mantra was um, ever-changing landscape. You know, you wake up every single day, social media is different. You have to be able to adapt to that and react. So we created that kind of attitude in the business where as long as there was change, we would play. And we became someone who rode change, actually like enjoyed change because we were set up in a way to operate. Hello and welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies, and ask them about their journey, operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, anything that can help uncover what it takes to build a high growth business. This is season four. We've got some amazing guests. Our first guest today is with Don McGregor from Fearless Adventures. So hi, Dom. Welcome to Riding Unicorns. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So, Dom, we often start with a broad question, which is, what does entrepreneurship mean to you? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's something that I've been pondering on for a long time because people have asked me before, are you born an entrepreneur or can you become an entrepreneur? And I think for to answer that, you have to distill what is entrepreneurship. For me, I always kind of seen it as entrepreneurship is the idea that things can be done better. And that can sit in any kind of category, be that business or be that in life but I think having an entrepreneur mindset is just approach that things can be improved things can get better an inquisitive approach to asking yourself how can things get better and how can things improve so when it comes to the kind of debate of are you born an entrepreneur or do you become an entrepreneur for me I've always kind of said that I I wasn't the kid at school selling sweets you know I, I wasn't that kind of ingrained mindset of being a hustler or anything like that I fell into a world that I didn't have much idea about but I took the fundamental approach I had to life about questioning things, being inquisitive and applied that into a, a world telling me that I was an entrepreneur rather than me being like, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. So that's how I always approach that question. I think it's a great question and one which really does get you thinking. Yeah, I think it's interesting to, to think about what you just said there with the people selling sweets at school, because I think that's definitely the stereotype. There are founders who go on to build massive businesses who had that sort of background. But I do think Sometimes you have to ask the question, you know, are those kinds of scrappy entrepreneurs like the zero to one entrepreneurs or are they going to go on and build the billion pound businesses? And I think sometimes it's actually the more like down the line route through banking consultancy type founder who goes on to build the huge businesses. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a super interesting one to ponder on. Obviously, Social Chain became a really big business and it's quite different to the sorts of businesses that James and I deal with on our daily basis as VCs we're investing in software not service businesses so I wonder can you sort of talk about that journey through social chain founding it building it and and I wonder if you kind of recognize any differences between building a services-based business versus software-based business I could go for a long time Hector on the challenges 
But I think one of the things that sets us apart of what we did is that we, we never set out of a plan. We fell into something. Social Chain was a business built from a genuine passion, which are getting more and more rare. I think there's definitely those businesses which start out as something which is just be it a hobby or something. But back in 2012, 2013, when we first started the company, social media wasn't an industry, really. You know, it was the emblems of MySpace and Bebo had come and gone. Facebook was this cool kid on the block and Instagram wasn't even invented. So to think that you could have an industry in social media or social media companies were going to be something was very, very rare. So we were just young kids who were experimenting almost with social media. And we found ourselves then in a situation where people externally wanted to start commercializing it. You know, we built a massive media audience on a platform. You know, we are reaching millions of students and young people across the UK and the world every single week. And we were, had, had to be told by people that that was valuable because we were so young at the time. We didn't know that owning that kind of level of media portfolio would be incredibly valuable to someone. So falling into it and kind of not really sitting back and asking yourselves, what is this? What am I going to do? What are we going to do? You kind of run before you can walk. And I think what we ended up doing was going head gun into tackling these businesses that had problems. You know, people would come to us and ask us, how do we use social media? Should we have an Instagram account? How do we reach young people online? What content should we make? And therefore you start helping these businesses with those questions. You then become their service provider. And it took us about 18 months into doing what we were doing to where someone said, oh, so you're an agency then? Because what were we? You know, we were a bunch of young people who had figured out and cracked social media pretty quickly so we can use that knowledge and spread that knowledge. So for the first couple of years of the business, that's what we kind of focused on. We focused on being that service provider, being our agency, and we had to fit into a bit of a understanding of people's world and where that sat. So being a social media agency was something new, something exciting because they didn't exist. I always say if people started a social media agency now, no one's going to write about it because it's so common. But we were riding a new wave, new pie, and, and a pioneer in a new area, which people were like, this is pretty cool. And that's kind of where the debate of being born an entrepreneur versus becoming an entrepreneur kind of starts because, you know, that opportunity to be able to take something by the horns and tackle with it and make it into something more, more than just what it is in that day is kind of where I think the entrepreneurial spark comes because you run with that opportunity and we kind of ran with that very heavy as I say we were a service business and we asked ourselves a question about three years in how do we become something which is stickier so how do we become a business which isn't just based on contracts you know thankfully our contracts were getting bigger and we work with bigger clients but we're still a service provider so we started looking at launching our own products that was kind of our next thought was you know we have to create something which we can embed into our clients we have to become someone who is integral to their growth we launched a couple of our own SaaS products into the market at that point but these were kind of very focused on ad tech marketing tech because that was the kind of background we had and we had some success in those areas and a couple of our tools were very much linked into clients businesses we started selling some third parties and yeah knew that kind of having control over your revenue in terms of owning the product a product was super important so we continued to build out some digital products, but then we kind of saw our marketing capabilities being able to apply that to physical products as well. So we went from a service-based business to having no control over your revenue, being based on you know 12-month service agreements, which in reality can be cut up at any single time due to business in-housing it or to changing market or changing conditions. 
to ultimately then becoming the brand product owner where our growth came from us having to pull the levers of running our own businesses and products. So did the whole full cycle of started with service, launched some SaaS, ended up became a brand owner. And I can tell you the more meaningful work came when, not when you were getting paid to help someone else's business grow, but when you actually saw one of your products, one of your ideas, something you created from the start, grow in a market. And that's where I got much more fulfillment. That's where I got much more satisfaction. And that's where I could see from my side as an individual where the world was going. And you know that's what we're seeing now is the number of SaaS businesses are there because they're fundamentally integral to how businesses operate. And if you're integral to how a business operates, then they're never going to get rid of you. Agencies aren't integral. SaaS is. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting story for a lot of founders that Jeff Bezos didn't know what Amazon was going to do today when he started it. And some founders, I think, worry or potential founders worry about they have to have the whole thing mapped out. But actually, you go on a journey, you pick a sector that you have unfair advantage in, unfair knowledge in, and you start building something. And then you iterate along the way and you find other areas to make more margin, more stickiness, etc. So I think it's a good anecdote for people thinking of starting a company that you don't necessarily need the 10-year plan laid out but you can start and and get going yeah i look at some some kind of three four year plans and i just think the world's going to change so much in that time so how can you forecast something when there's so many so many unknowns so yeah 100 percent. i think the the things you can control are your kind of founding principles your values and the way you approach challenges and i always remember saying to people that i genuinely believe that social chain if we were responsible for selling beds or for selling bathrooms we'd be the best asset because we approach things with a different mindset and that's what we kind of ingrained into people from the starting ages, from when they were starting social chain. It's like, the world is going to change. Our number one mantra was um, ever-changing landscape. You know, you wake up every single day, social media is different. You have to be able to adapt to that and react. So we created that kind of attitude in the business where as long as there was change, we would play. And we became someone who rode to change, actually like enjoyed change because we were set up in a way to operate. So yeah, 100%, that's exactly right. It's the things you can control is the team, how they approach things, their mindset. The things you can't control is where the company is going to end up and what it's going to do because there's so many unknowns. Your genesis was obviously this agency model, but then you had these different departments and particularly agency models, they're all about people. But obviously, as you grew into different areas, you had new growing teams and stuff. So you must have hired a lot of people, had to manage a lot of people. What were the biggest lessons around hiring and people management from the social chain journey? I think the biggest lesson is that it's the most important part of the company. That was the biggest lesson. It's something that I oversaw personally. I made sure that I was in 80% of the interviews to a point or at least signed off people uh, and understood who they were, what their motivations were. Because again, collectively, if you strip back everything, you are just a bunch of people in a room. That's what a company is. We could be selling baths um, and we'd be the best at it. So yeah, that was the, the number one learning and that, People do throw around cliches in terms of hire slow, fire fast. We definitely hired fast. We needed bums on seats very, very quickly to do things. And we made some major mistakes there. We brought in too many people. We brought in too many people of a certain demographic. We brought in too many people who, in my opinion, wanted to work at Social Chain because they wanted to work at Social Chain. That's the worst motivation, the worst reason to work at a company. You have to have some kind of passion in the area, some kind of passion, not just look at a company and think, you know what they've got look like they're having fun over there. People took advantage of our kind of 
culture and generosity because it would be it was going to be a nice place and yes we had amazing perks and we had amazing things but the reason we gave that is because we wanted to create a high performance environment not a place where people can come and relax yeah just how did you build a high performance culture again it comes back to what i talk about in terms of the values of the company what do we stand for what do we want to be known for and you know we put the kind of first fearless ever changing as our three values so we have to be first we have to be someone who gets into new areas before anyone else we have to get that information to ourselves to be able to benefit our own products we have to be fearless and you know fearless is, is about taking risks and you can probably see the inspiration for fearless adventures and where that inspiration came from it's something i just i just believe in um, and ever changing ever changing just as i said before marks to the the landscape we're living it's always going to change it's always going to evolve the world will change so how do we create that high performance it was was drilling those and distilling those values into it and looking for people who who represented those values and that gave everyone a, a bit of a playbook really to think how they should approach things you know these are the values of the company this is what the company stands for we know who the founders are we know what they, they want to see and people then translated it into their every single day de- every single day you can't manage 750 people across the globe you can't have direct influence in every single one of them it's just unmanageable but what you can have is you can create a mantra which the company lives by and people can point to when they need to make decisions yeah it's really interesting i think we've had a few guests talk about culture and it's sort of the management when you're not in the room is sort of those values trying to impose on sort of people's decision making and things like that which is good uh, although it's not imposing it's often set by the staff as well which is something that's been raised in other episodes and so founders and investors can get quite obsessed with kpis or metrics what metrics did you guys optimize at at social chain and is there anything that you stopped measuring as well as you grew i mean one thing we did low focus on which is quite rare to hear about these days is profit we we made sure that you know we were building a profitable business because that would allow us to do things elsewhere so um, I don't know if many founders have mentioned that recently, but uh, no, I mean, it's actually a weird question to answer, but the metrics which I got most excited about were more soft metrics and it's more the board meetings you go to every single month. You can give reports on how you feel the business is going. And there were moments when you can feel there's kind of a seismic shift on how things are going through, the, call it weird, but a gut feeling, you know, you can, have, you can have an understanding of, you know, the soft metrics of how briefs are being responded to how people are starting to see us in market how that feedback that customers are saying of why we lose pitches the ideas maybe being too scary which is always a good thing for us so it's not always again the models the models different it's not always about taking in what is the recurring revenue looking like what is you know the, the forecast looking like there are kind of sometimes where just the kind of feedback from listening to what's going on in the company what people are hearing are we attracting the right talent are we doing work that we're proud of? All these kind of other things that go on creates a gut feeling within the entrepreneur to say, yeah, I actually think things are in a good place right now. And there was times when we kind of had amazing months of revenue and things were flying off, off the handle where you can actually sit there and think, things aren't actually that good right now. You know, we got lucky with a couple of pitches, a couple of things were down to, you know, one or two reasons happening and we can't bank on this to be sustainable. It's definitely not always the hard metrics, which we put a lot of time into. It's much more about what we were getting back from people. Yeah, I mean, people talk a lot about running their businesses in a data-driven way now. What you're talking about, you know, the gut feeling and stuff. I think there is an element of being able to run a business on gut feeling, but I wonder 
you know, whether you feel in hindsight you could have run it in a more data-driven way and whether you think that that would have benefited you guys. You know, if you were able to measure client happiness or proportion of pitch wins to pitch losses, I mean, you probably were looking at some of this stuff. But do, do you think there was an opportunity to run or still is an opportunity to run businesses, agency businesses in a really data-driven way? 100%. And I think, you know, the, the car metrics we were measuring, you know, all, all of that stuff you mentioned, we were, we were measuring, getting very much tight on where we are in the market. But the, there was things where you could look at the kind of types of pitches you're getting, the type of briefs you're getting, you can say, okay, we may not have won those briefs, but we're actually entering ourselves into a different category now of pitches and the work we're doing is at a higher standard. So we don't now need to win four contracts to get to the level we need. We just need to win one of them. So actually, it means that we're actually in a better position because we then get a lower dependency of customer base, less number of clients, which is a better thing in agencies because then you can service them better. Instead of doing kind of ad hoc projects, you start saying, no, well, actually, we're entered into the category of getting higher bespoke pitches now and briefs and people are seeing us as a strategic partner rather than us as a service business. So I think there's 100% able to run any business, but an agency business specifically on a, on a more data-led approach. But I just don't think that you would then look at these things in as much focus, the types of briefs you're getting, why you're getting the briefs, what is the market saying about you? I do think that always there's room for improvement, but some of the things that we just felt about the business at times, presenting opportunities came from all the data that we collected, the numbers, the objective feedback, and let us kind of understand what we think we should do. Yeah, I was going to ask about, you know, running a profitable business, actually, because as you say, we don't meet many profitable businesses on this show, you know, many multi-billion dollar businesses, and most of those aren't profitable. Yeah, and kind of how you felt about that. And, you know, did you ever have times where you were right up against the buffer, you know, close to running out of cash and no VCs to fall back on? And what's it like Yeah, running a business where actually you're totally cash flow reliant? You actually hit the nail on the head a little bit there about being cash flow dependent. Profit doesn't necessarily mean cash collection either. You know, we had this horrible period in the business where, again, we had one of those kind of growth moments where we were going from working maybe on like ad hoc projects, like 20, 30 grand, to now being responsible for multi-territory, uh, multi-product businesses. You know, your Amazons, your FIFA, your Coca-Colas. And what we kind of realized in that period was the contract sizes got massive, huge. And they started to land month after month where we started to win these businesses. And Amazon had 120-day payment terms. Coca-Cola had 99 payment terms. So we had this horrible period where we've got to spend 50% of the, the money comes out before we even see a penny. So you're actually there like, we haven't got the cash to be able to actually do these campaigns, even though we've got the revenue secured. So you then actually end up thinking, okay, what is the balance between taking financial products, be it debt, equity, because you know the business is fine, but you know you haven't got the cash to be able to deliver. So you start taking other types of products on the market. So it opens you up to different worlds and different options. You know, you start thinking, okay, invoice factoring, you know, that makes complete sense for this reason. These two reasons we should do that. So um, it makes you think more about the options you have as a founder to ultimately then protect your equity. Because with raise after raise after raise, what you're giving away is your equity in the business. So being able to have that kind of profitability an understanding of profitability allowed us in a business where we raised a lot of money proportionate to the industry and a service model that allowed us to protect our equity position because we were taking capital into fuel growth rather than to fund losses. So it kind of changed it a little bit. You know, we weren't promising a hockey stick 
growth. We were much more about sustainable growth, but we were back, able to back a business where we could say the money you're investing is going into is going into new opportunities and new growth rather than just into maintaining what we have at the moment. Yeah, this conversation takes me a little bit back to the first ever Riding Unicorns episode where we had Sir Martin Sorrell on. And I don't know whether you guys any had any conversations with him, but maybe t- take us to the latter part of the social chain journey and the, the listing of the company and what that meant for you guys as, as founders of the business and the emotional side of it as well, because it must have been a, you know, quite a big change in the way you guys were running the business. He's a great guy. And I think if we didn't have an interaction with him in our time in the sectors we were both in, I think we'd have been doing something wrong. So no, we definitely, we definitely have. So I think the kind of responsibility we had as founders was to, to make sure that the company was in the best possible place. Uh, and we kind of explored options of what we wanted to do with social chain, where the kind of longevity was and the legacy potential was. And as I mentioned there, you know, that transition of going from being a service business to being a product owner and then also in our own DTC businesses was kind of the route we wanted to go on because it allowed us to kind of have much more aggressive growth. The growth from agency revenue is, is slow. It, it takes a long time. You, you open new territory, you have to do completely new market, you have to do pitch cycles. It's not a case of putting a team in there and you can start selling from day one. That sales cycle is a long, long time. So for us to scale a business to the size we wanted to do, enterprise value, global operation, we knew that we had to diversify and we knew that diversification was so important. So we we chose the route of a essentially an acquisition of a company which had got the logistics, supply chain and infrastructure to be able to do D2C, which we then essentially, in theory, add us together with the kind of front-end marketing uh, and bring together their back-end operations to be able to put the two together and drive their own products for our channels. So for us, it made a lot of sense, you know, in terms of that being a, a business that was a publicly traded company in Germany. We had the connection through mutual investors, so there was some synergies there. So that allowed us essentially to reverse merger into that company. And for us, it was an opportunity, you know, as founders at first to get that listed share price, go through the process of the kind of the valuation of every single company in the kind of group and, and roll up. So for us, yeah, it, it was the, the right choice for the business to give access to fresh capital, put it on the public markets, continue to market ourselves as, as a fast growing company and, and also realize that we're potential to kind of continue to drive our share price up. So, yeah, and I think from the personal point of view, first time company you you want to do these exciting things you want to have that ticker you know you want to be able to see open your your stocks up and see your baby that of a business you invented in a room in manchester in 2013 sat there it's just a great moment just a fantastic moment so for us you know when that possibility presented itself as a strategy we just went for it sure and i presume you've taken a lot of your experience with building actual and selling products into your investing with with Phyllis Adventures so it makes a good segue into what you are doing now um, and, and what the vision is with Fearless and what exactly it is that you're up to. Yeah so you're completely right Fearless, Fearless Adventures is a combination of my experience um, and my partner's experience from the running their companies you know I'm founding the company with Charlie Yates and David Noons. Charlie's background is corporate finance he's done one billion worth of transactions uh, and David is a serial entrepreneur and he's done two exits to FTSE 30 companies so we kind of came together on the basis that we just love entrepreneurs you know we love speaking with entrepreneurs and during last last year we all left our companies at the same time we were all speaking about what it's like to be 
a in a pandemic and not being able to kind of realize that, that success and have that moment or, or but also what what do you do next what is the future and we we had some discussions and we found ourselves just finding our days speaking with entrepreneurs understanding their world what they're doing what their problems are and a lot of entrepreneurs said to us look i'm 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 here right now and i want to get to here can you help me and it took me back to the early days of social chain when founders were coming to us for that help and support um and i was like well of course we can that's exactly what i did for years of course we could help you and then that snowballed from there because what does that help look like you then look at the private map look at the private funding markets what are the options for capital there's plenty um you can raise money you can do that but when you look at dtc brands or even tech brands or even you know any businesses out there you know the requirement for cash is, is quite the same it's 30 percent for people it's 30 percent for product and it's 30 percent for marketing and 10 percent tends to be a bit of a variance i have not seen many decks which stray too far from that to be honest i don't know if you guys have so you look at it and go that's what businesses need is they need people and they need marketing so how do we tackle those two things and build a product where we can provide the capital for the for the rest of the stuff they need we can provide the support when it comes to actually the people that need to do the, the marketing side of things and then we can actually do the marketing because again coming to that part about agencies when you start working with an agency 50 percent of the money you spend is on fees so actually you're wasting half your marketing budget on time on other people when that money could be spent either bringing in people in-house or in having an impact so Phyllis Adventures is a, a company which invests in brands and supports them through the provision of services that they need and I think the biggest thing for me was speaking to the founders and this was probably more a pandemic situation but there was a lot of founder fatigue a lot of lack of understanding of who to turn to who can founders go to for support They'd say their board meetings were not productive um, and they were looking for someone just to give them a bit of guidance and bringing together free entrepreneurs who have kind of been there and done that. That's also a large part of why people are interested in us because we can help them with those kind of entrepreneurial problems and struggles. Yeah, it's really interesting when you break it down like that in terms of use of funds and things. And so what types of companies are you going after? Is it DTC, e-com, agencies? I mean, you... You could you could help all three. So, I mean, what types of companies are you looking for? So, no, no agencies. Rule number one: never go back to agencies. We've done two tech businesses and three direct consumer businesses. We've got an ambition to continue to do more in both areas. So, we're going to spin out specific products for tech and for direct consumer to continue to be able to provide provisions for what each of them needs because they are slightly different. You know, we we run at this with a kind of central base of what we assumed most people needed, but kind of spending time with two investing in two tech companies and BT businesses their their requirements are slightly different. So we'll be looking at building out a portfolio across both those sectors. How is it working so far? I mean the the biggest thing for me is the feedback from founders. Is the fact that if they've just been around and say, I wish we could have had you, if they're in the rep process of raising, it's like this is exactly what I need. For me that's been the biggest validation is like the actual fact that people they understand it straight away and they go, that makes complete sense. You can actually come and help me and do this stuff for me that I'm raising money to try and figure out myself. Because a lot of times, more than I actually thought myself, marketing is the problem for companies. They could build a great product, be it tech or physical, and they don't know how to get it out to people, be it B2B or B2C. So it is a continuous problem. So yeah, that, that, that's been the biggest validation. Are you kind of looking at companies through the lens of 
in a way kind of marketing arbitrage like do you see a company and you think okay well i think that looks really interesting the product but your marketing's way off point do you see opportunity there or do you want to actually invest in people who who are doing marketing well but you could probably still help them a, a little bit it's a great question i think there's definitely businesses across the entire spectrum so there's businesses we've looked at who have raised a lot of money spent a lot of money and not done anything and literally 30 seconds in their ad account you can understand why you can be like okay this is what you've done wrong you spent uh, we have got examples of spending a million and be like you've just done this wrong like this is completely wrong like you wasted a million basically so there are those people that have raised a lot of money and are doing things wrong there's also you know when you talk about the resources it requires to run a proper marketing omni-channel strategy there's a lot of resources it needs you know businesses these days tend to have one two three four channels maybe which are actually delivering for them and they haven't focused on other channels because they're out of capacity and resources so you know businesses which are doing really well be it on amazon be it on retail be it wholesale be it great crm strategy be it facebook they've spent their time on those channels to build their business because they know they're working they haven't gone and gone okay Let's go and try somewhere else because Pinterest, for example, or to try Snapchat or to try, you know, even like retail themselves. It's like that requires me to take a step into the unknown, hire someone who's a specialist that probably I don't know will work. And it's a waste when I know that this is currently working. So we're seeing a lot of businesses which are born from that. So it's not a case of, you know, looking at a business and being like, you're not doing anything. We'll come in and make it. It's a case of understanding the business where we think the opportunity lies and us with them presenting a plan to be like these are actually the opportunities i think you guys see we're bringing in a whole team and you know we got a team of 25 people to put in together a 100 day plan to get things set up and running and from that then this is what things should look like so there's no one where else you could get access to 25 channel specialists for not actually for no cost but actually as part of your investment, who can come in, look at the business and make meaningful changes. I think it's a super interesting model, partly because you can, in terms of the people you're hiring, those 25 people, it must be a really appealing proposition to those people. The idea that they can be part of a team employed, but working for tons of different companies at the same time, in a way, it's just a very varied day job. Yeah, I mean, what people love about agencies is the variation that's what keeps people at agencies is the fact you one day you're working here one day you're working there what people go to brands for and work brand side is because yes it's a bit metogenous you do the same thing over and over again but pay slightly higher security slightly better and kind of career progression is better so when you combine those kind of two things together where you have the ability to work across multiple projects but in an environment which is a bit more professional and ultimately we are in financial services here now people go from an employment standpoint well of course i'd work there we haven't lost any staff yet one of the girls today showed me a linkedin she's like i just get so many job, job offers and like, i don't look at any of them but that's because people they have a lot of the fulfillment that they want that they have things that they enjoy from other areas in one place it's really great that you're offering those kind of specialist services across the portfolio there's a sort of trend around FBA acquisition kind of roll-up models at the moment. What's your view on that? It's sort of like cost-saving and everything that they're trying to do. What, 
what's your perspective on those types of models? I know data, I've seen data, I've heard stories. I think the idea of fully buying a company, getting rid of the founder of the entrepreneur, putting it to a grad student who's may have an MBA from some company and telling them this is all you need to improve it, isn't going to work. I think they're trying to grow too quickly. Yes, it's a competitive market and they're bidding each other and they're running out of targets now because there's not that many companies out there. But my opinion is cutting the head off any company to be the founder or anything, you lose everything. You lose the integrity. So any kind of roll-up or any kind of centralized platform or aggregator or whatever you want to call it, they need to find a model to keep founders incentivized. And I think just buying a business and assuming you can make it better than someone who is putting their blood, sweat and tears every single day waking up and doing it is very naive. Yeah, well, I, I love that as an answer because it's just the sort of the human side of it. It just sort of seems so obvious, um, which is great. So, Dom, slightly switching tact, we like to try and get to know you as the individual as much as understanding your journey through your companies. I know you've been a huge advocate for sobriety and you post some amazing content about that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why that's so important to you and sort of how that's helped you through your career? Yeah, I mean, my sobriety came about as a part of me as a person deteriorating because of pressures, because of stresses, because I was a 22-year-old guy running a company with like 200 people. And I wasn't set up for that. I didn't appreciate what it would take out of me from a physical, mental, emotional standpoint. So I put it all on my shoulders and, and had a massive, massive kind of crushing feeling upon me, which then what led me to have this kind of niggling voice in the back of your mind, which is telling you, you're not good enough. You shouldn't be doing this. Things are going to go horribly wrong. You're going to run out of cash. All these things are going to go wrong. And the only way to get rid of that voice is to drink and to shut it up. That's what I thought. That's the only way to manage it. So you have this cycle where you drink, the voice gets louder, you drink, the voice gets louder, you drink more to make the voice quieter, you just drink, 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 drink. So now you're in a point now where you're basically your life revolves around alcohol every single day you're drinking and you become a shell of a person because you're just literally functioning to stay alive and treading water. And then you start messing up. You start hurting people, damaging relationships and all these other things which alcoholism has. And then you've got a choice, you know. You've got a choice, and I had my choice. I had a choice between is social chain the place I want to be? Is it my, or do I want to carry on being able to drink? I actually distill it even further. Do I want to be alive or not? So for me, breaking everything down and going through kind of the process of why I was drinking, what was causing me to drink, drinking was my medicine. It was what I used to breathe, basically. So I had to stop it. I had to get rid of the alcohol and tackle the kind of root problem. So yeah, that helped me kind of get over my imposter syndrome, my anxiety, my depression, and then made me a, a much happier person realize that the problems that were happening, that voice inside of my head was not because of social chain. I wasn't because of what was going on. It's because I couldn't deal with it. So it gave me the ability to deal with that and process it and get over it. And then you then realize that, you know, you don't need alcohol in your life because you don't want to go back to that point. And I'm sure lots of founders listening might be feeling quite under the cosh at the moment. So what are some of the other ways that you deal with that pressure and where have you found your tools and coping mechanisms? Because you're still running, you know, high growth businesses and managing lots of people. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing for me was kind of understanding that what is your Everest? What is that point where, and I say that in a not in a good way, but in a bad way. What was that situation which is the most stressful 
darkest, deepest place to get out of. And I got out of it. So like now, everything is insignificant compared to that. Every problem, everything. It's like I can tackle that because I got I did this. So my coping mechanism, and it's a horrible thing to say, my coping mechanism was me hitting rock bottom because I then had relative understanding of that life is not that bad. I have me, I have my health, I have my beautiful fiance, I have my lovely dog, I have everything I need. So everything else, every problem, every stress is just temporary and I can deal with it. So yeah, it's a lot of internal looking at yourself and saying to yourself, well, you know, it's relative. (laughs) It's relative, you know, and it's not, you know, we used to talk about fires and things being on fire and the size of the fire, once you've seen the fire for the first time, gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to like, you know, what people call us like a, we've got a big problem. People think it's a big problem. Actually, it's just a speed bump. You just go, let's do this and we'll go over it. <laughs> so yeah, my, my kind of anchor is experience, which is so, which again, unfortunately to entrepreneurs listening to this for the first time, it's very difficult to take any kind of lesson from that because what I'm saying is you've got to go for it. <laughs> It's great advice and it is, it's all about perspective, but Dom, I mean, thank you for opening up. I think it's, it's something that we really appreciate and, and the listeners, I'm sure lots of people will relate to it. So yeah, thank you. But before you go, we always like to play the dinner party guest game um, where you can pick three people dead or alive to come to a dinner. Who would you have? Yeah. I mean, look, I live in the past. I'm a, I love history. I love understanding wanting to understand the mysteries around things we'll never know so for me like it has to be three figures from history because i also think they hold the key to so many things so number one my idol and the kind of probably the only person i'm a lit like i'm mildly inspired by is um a guy called napoleon i think he is fascinating i think number two is, is richard the third as a person, his story is untold as he was a byproduct of mass propaganda after his loss of the throne. So I don't understand whatever he thinks. And then finally, um, I think he is probably the person I have the most admiration for as a human being and as a leader. I actually think he's the greatest leader ever with anyone and it's uh, Abraham Lincoln fantastic why Napoleon why are you inspired by him like coming back to the point of what I think entrepreneurship is it's like thinking things can be done better um, and he pioneered a completely new way of thinking about the world off the embers of the French Revolution the kind of ideas of liberty and, fr- and freedom for every single person he kind of embodied all that and brought that to reality into France and then into Europe you know everything that was that's happened in Europe in terms of the European Union, in terms of the free markets, in terms of everything you kind of see in Europe today, down to the, the legal system and people being tried as individuals fairly, is down to him. That, for me, I could debate with people who are who a bit disagree with me, but he is the, the person which led to a kind of free, a free Europe of what we see today. That's really interesting. I think you've got three points for originality. Is that right, Hector? I don't think we've had those three before, so it's always great. And um, Dom, thank you so much for coming on and telling us your riding unicorn story 
Fearless has got huge potential and you guys have done so much in such a short period of time, which is massive testament to you and your partners. And the social chain story is obviously one of the biggest kind of uh, entrepreneurship stories in the UK. So it's been amazing to hear a little bit more about how you guys did that and the journey there. So thank you so much. No worries. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Tom. So that's it for episode one of our new season. Uh, We've got lots of amazing new episodes coming up. Every Wednesday, we release a new episode. If you aren't already, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify or Apple or somewhere else. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns on Substack. Just go and follow us on social media and you'll be notified about how to follow that. Please do look out for it. We don't just talk about the podcast. We also keep everyone up to date of the world of unicorn building. So please go and have a look. And yeah, see you next time on Riding Unicorns.